0: Well, today we're going to be talking about worship, beginning a three-week series on what worship is. And as you see, worship is for an audience of one. It's for God. That's why we worship. In Psalm 122, it begins, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. I hope that you're glad to be here today in the house of the Lord. But I wonder, why did you come this morning? Now, I'm glad you're here, but why did you come this morning? Now, many would say it's to worship, but what does that really mean to worship? As I said, over the next three weeks, we're going to be unpacking what this word worship means and what it is that we do in a worship service. We're going to be talking about our singing. We're going to be talking about our offerings. We're going to be talking about prayer. We're going to be talking really about our lives. And so when it comes to worship, the passage I want us to look at today is found in John chapter 4. In John chapter 4, we find Jesus talking to a woman about worship. This is a Samaritan woman at the well. And if you look at John 4, beginning in verses 19 through 26, she says this, "'Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where where men ought to worship.'" Jesus said to her, "'Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem shall you worship the Father.'" You worship that which you do not know. We worship that which we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When, the one, when this one, that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her I who speak to you am he. Now what we're looking at here is a part of a conversation that is taking place between Jesus and this woman at the well the Samaritan woman. And if we were to look at the whole passage what we would find is the reason she calls Jesus a prophet is because he's just revealed some things to her. He's told her all about her life. And and she figures here's a man who has the answers to life. And so a question that's been burning in her mind is the one she asks in verse 20. She says, our fathers worshiped in this mountain, and you people say that Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Now, when she says, you people, this is a reference to the Jews. And you see the animosity that existed between the Samaritans and the Jews. And this feeling of dislike was was mutual because you'll recall that the Jews saw the Samaritans as half-breeds. They were the product of the Assyrian captivity where some of the Jews had intermarried with the Syrians, and these were were seen as people who were excluded from Israel. And so the Jews shunned the Samaritans. They were not welcome in Mount Moriah in Jerusalem where the temple was to worship there. And so what they did was they set up their own place of worship. And they chose Mount Gerizim. If you've read the book of Deuteronomy, you'll recall that when, when God reaffirmed and, and stated the terms of the covenant with Israel, he gathered them at a place where Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim formed this amphitheater. And the curses were read off of Mount Ebal while the blessings were read from Mount Gerizim. So they chose the place of blessing as the place of worship. Now, in our day, we don't argue about which mountain to worship on, whether it's Moriah or Gerizim or Ebal or some other place. But while the details are different, the debates are the same because we, we argue about worship. Sometimes it's about what do we wear to church? Sometimes it's about what do we sing? What is the style of worship? Sometimes we argue about where do you even go to church? There are some who will fight about what is the true church and what denomination is the one you have to be a part of in order to get to heaven. Friends, in almost 25 years of pastoral ministry, I've never had God call me from heaven and ask me to transfer a letter of membership from the church I was pastoring. So it doesn't matter so much where you go to church, as long as it is a church that is teaching the word of God and pointing you to the true one, Jesus Christ. God doesn't care, believe it or not, whether you go to First Assembly, First United Methodist, First Presbyterian, First Baptist, Grace Point, Oak Hills, Community Bible, or Worship at Wayside. Where you worship is not what is important, it is whom you worship. Whether you know the one named Jesus Christ, God's Son who was sent to pay the penalty of death on the cross, if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, then that is the one that will grant you entrance into heaven. His death alone paid the penalty for our sins. Now, as we think about that great gift that God gave to us, this great gift of eternal life, it should cause us to worship, to have our hearts overflowing with gratitude because of the great gift that God gave to us. And as we think about that great gift, as we talk about what worship is, our English word worship originally was written as "worth." Ship. In old English, worship was written as worth ship. And what worship denotes is the worthiness of an individual to receive special honor in accordance with that worth. So when we worship God, what we are recognizing is who he is and what he has done and what he deserves from us. The, the Greek word that we find nine times in this passage we're looking at is proskuneo. And this is a word that means to do obeisance. Now, that's a big fancy word. What does it mean? Well, it is, it's an acknowledgement of the superiority of another by doing homage, often demonstrated by a movement of the body, such as bowing down or falling prostrate before the one being worshipped. And so first, it's a recognition of who it is. And then it is a follow-through with what we do to acknowledge who he is. A related word that you find is translated as service in the Scriptures. And this word service was used to describe a servant, a slave, who would serve the master. And as this individual served the master, there was often this bowing down at the foot of the, the one that they were serving. So it gives us a beautiful practical picture of What worship is it is where we are serving the one who is superior to us and doing that not just with our lips But our lives as we follow through You know often we think in terms of worship as the songs that are sung, but worshiping God is about more than the music It is a reverent response of our heart That is seen in the offering of our lives and all that we say all that we do and all that we have as you look at the scriptures, one of the places where we see this idea of worship is found in Colossians chapter 3, verses 16 through 17. It says, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with, with all wisdom, teaching, admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Now look at that next verse. Whatever you do in word or deed, Do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Whatever you say and do, all. It's not just the songs that we sing. It's not just that form of worship. It's everything that we do. There was a a woman who had a sign over her kitchen sink. And it said, worship performed here three times a day. Worship performed here three times a day. She had this heart attitude. She had this understanding. Of that joyful service and all that she said and did. As Colossians tells us here, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Worship is something that can be done anywhere, it's not just done here in the sanctuary. And let me say this as well not everything that is done in this sanctuary is worship. Now you may say, well, what did you just say? That's right. Not everything we do in this sanctuary is worship if. We disengage our hearts and our minds from what we're doing. You see, it's easy for you to come and just be on autopilot, isn't it? As the songs were being sung, have you ever found yourself just mouthing the words? You're just, you're just mindlessly saying the words and you're thinking about something else while you're singing the words. Have you ever found yourself doing that? Friends, that's not worship. When I was uh, being raised as a a Catholic, uh, I was an altar boy. And I remember one of the priests, Father Mills, who used to every week be very upset about watching people come in. Because they did what he called the half-slide and chasing flies. If you were raised Catholic as I was, you know that as you came in, you would get the holy water and you would do the sign of the cross. Or as you were coming to the pew, you would genuflect. Well, people would come in and do the half slide where they would just kind of partially kneel as they slid into the thing, and they looked like they were chasing flies as they did the sign of the cross. They were just kind of waving around. They were not engaged. They were not thinking. Their heart and mind were not a part of what it was. Genuflecting was a sign of reverence, bowing before the one who is superior. The sign of the cross was meant to remind you of, of the sacrifice, and for us we can do that. We can come in. Now maybe we don't do the half slide and chasing flies, but we do what Isaiah 29:13 warns us. Isaiah 29:13, we read, "The Lord says, these people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is made up only of rules taught by men." You see, worshipping God is not following rote ritual. It's not about being religious. It's about a relationship. It's about an understanding of who it is that we are worshiping and why we are worshiping him. It involves both the head and the heart. We need to know him and respond to him, which is why Jesus says we are to worship in spirit and in truth. The head and the heart are involved. Let me illustrate it in terms of my wife. Over the quarter century that we've been married, as we've come together, uh, birthdays will come, anniversaries will come, there will be times that I'll give Kim a present, there are times I give her a gift, just not because it's any special day, but it's just my way of saying I love you and I want to acknowledge our relationship. Now if, if I were to give Kim a gift and she says, oh Roger, thank you, this is so great, and I said, well, you know, it was our anniversary, I knew I had to do it. What kind of response is that going to get from my wife? Yeah, I'm hearing the ooze. You see, that is not the, the relationship response. Let me switch it around. What if I were to say to Kim, Honey, I am so devoted to you. I love you so much. But every birthday, every anniversary, every day just passed, and there was no acknowledgement of love to her, no giving of of a tangible reminder or even a a verbal, I love you, saying, you know, I told you 25 years ago I loved you. Nothing's changed. Why do I need to keep telling you? Would that work either? Ooh, again, no. You see, simply saying I have a desire and devotion without any motion would fall short. Either way, It doesn't carry the head and the heart into that demonstration. And it's the same thing in our worship of God. Simply doing things out of road obedience with no devotion is not not a response of a real loving relationship. Or the reverse, just to say, I love you, God, but our life does nothing to show that. That is not showing the duty and devotion uh, tied with the desire As you look at your life and how you worship God, is both your head and your heart involved? We've already seen that worship is not limited to the songs we sing, but it's in the offering of our lives. It's in all that we say and all that we do. Now, because many think of worship in terms of music, let me illustrate it there. This morning, we were led by a wonderful group of musicians and singers. And as we watched them, they were worshiping. There was the head and the heart involved. You see, the head part comes not only in knowing who they were singing to, but it comes in the skill that was, that was honed. Before we see them ever on a Sunday, do you know that they plan the worship? They go through and there's skill involved as they choose songs that keys will transition properly with one another, the parts have to mold. There is countless hours of, of rehearsal. Not only in developing the skill in the first place, but then in coming together so all the parts come together. And then as they stand before us, uh, it's not about having a polished performance. But instead, it's offering a proper sacrifice. A sacrifice of praise to God. Hebrews thirteen fifteen tells us, Let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that give him thanks. Give thanks to his name. In the Old Testament, the offerings that were brought into the temple were the best, the best that the people had. They didn't just grab something or a defective animal. They brought the very best. And when our team comes together, these men and women who are skilled, what they're doing is they're offering their best. And as they stand here, it's not about us watching a show. They're not only worshiping personally, but then they serve as the prompters the ones who help lead us into worship. It doesn't mean that if you're somebody like me who lacks musical ability that you sit silently by and watch while others worship. What Psalm 100 tells us is, Shout joyfully to the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful singing. Know that the Lord himself is God. It is he who has made us, and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and bless his name. If you're somebody who has a skill and ability, you should be serving God with it. You should be sharing that in the choir, the orchestra, as a part of those who are doing that. There are others that are serving behind the scenes, the sound, the lighting, the people who are involved in that part of the service. They are giving their service, their heart and their head, along with their lips and their lives. And God calls on us to do that. But if you're like me and you sound a little bit like a wounded coyote when you sing, it says, "Shout joyfully to the Lord." Your your praise can be just as great an offering. It's not about the perfection of the performance. It's about the state of the heart. It's not about state of the art, but the state of the heart. You know, as you talk about worshiping. It's, it's easy to feel like you have to have all of this. This, this beautiful worship center, the, the lights, the music, the other things. But you know, friends, I've worshipped God in a dilapidated building in the inner city. I've worshipped God in hospital rooms around a bed with all the monitors beeping. And I've worshipped God in beautiful stained glass cathedrals with soaring roofs and, and symphonies and whole choirs. It's not about the place. The place that you're in, it's about the place of your heart and the state of your, your mind and your heart, whether that's engaged. I've sat on the floor in people's homes and on rocks in the wilderness with soaring trees and blue skies for a cathedral. It's not about having a state-of-the-art team or a state-of-the-art facility. It's about the state of your heart. And as you come to worship, is your mind and your heart engaged in worship? In the scriptures, we see those who were named the Levites. These were those who who prepared to lead in worship. And as they did so, they not only prepared on the skill side, but they prepared their hearts. Numbers 8.21 tells us the Levites purified themselves from sin, and they washed their clothes, and Aaron presented them as a wave offering before the Lord. Aaron also made atonement for them to cleanse them. Now, as they washed themselves in their clothes, aside from the issue of physical cleanliness, coming prepared externally, what it reminded them of as they washed away the external dirt is there was dirt inside. There was sin. It said there was an offering made to atone for them, to cleanse them. As you come to worship on Sundays at church or at some other point, how much time do you spend getting ready? Do you have to set the clock ahead an hour? just to get up so you, you have time to, to fix yourself up to come? And as you've been preparing yourself outwardly, how often do we remember to prepare ourselves inwardly? Do we spend time in confession? Do we spend time realizing that maybe throughout the week there's been sin in our life? And do we confess that sin? Do we prepare ourselves? First Samuel 16, 7 says, God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. Do we prepare ourselves internally for worship? You know, you may have gotten ready Sunday morning and everything's been good, but as, as you are in the car coming to church, you know, sometimes sin takes place there. Have you ever had that fight with your family on the way? Or maybe the sin takes place in the parking lot as you're pulling in, and that last spot that you were about to get just got taken by somebody, and now you're going, oh, now I get to drive over to the shuttle lot and, and ride that in. Maybe it's when you're dropping your kids off over in the children's ministry and you've been dragging them around. There's been fighting and you see people in the hall and suddenly you flash the smile. No, oh, we're a perfect, happy family. Do we stop and confess those sins? You know, 1 John 1.9 tells us if we confess our sins, God is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And you know, even if you manage to, to come in and sit down Sunday morning without committing some sin on the way to church, it's, it's good sometimes just to sit and transition from the busyness of your world during the week, just to prepare yourself. You can look in the bulletin and see the, the scripture passage we're going to be looking at and read through it first. And as you read through it, start to formulate questions in your mind. Say, I wonder if Roger's going to talk about this. Or, you know, I've always wondered about this. And, and maybe you don't have any questions about the passage per se, but you can, you can prepare yourself by saying, what is the personal application for me? What, what does God want me to do this week with what it is that we're, we're looking at? Take time to transition. Another important part of preparation is to come with an attitude of expectation. There was a family that was leaving church one day, and as, as they loaded up in the car and they pulled out of their parking lot, the complaining began immediately. The, the father said, you know, the sermon was boring as usual. And the mother said, yeah, the music was terrible, just like last time. The oldest daughter piped in, I didn't get anything out of Sunday school either. But the whole conversation suddenly came to an end when the little boy in the back of the car said, you know, I thought it was a pretty good show for the dollar we gave. You know, when you come to church, what are you looking for? Is it an opportunity to worship God? Or are you looking for all the things that are going to go wrong? There's an old nursery rhyme, and it says, kitty cat, kitty cat, where have you been? And the cat responds, I've been to London to visit the queen. Kitty cat, kitty cat, what did you see there? He replies, I frightened a little mouse under her chair. You know, here was a cat that came into the presence of royalty, all the splendor. And instead of seeing royalty, all it saw was a rodent. And why? Because cats look for mice. Friends, when you come on Sunday to worship, what are you looking for? Are you coming to worship royalty, the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings? are you looking for Mice? You know, if you're looking for mice in the music, you'll probably find it. There might be a a key change that didn't go right, somebody who's not on their part. If you think the sermon's going to be long and boring, well, then it probably will be. If you think there's not going to be anything for you this morning in church or your ABF or Sunday school, then you'll probably leave the way that you came. But if we come with an attitude of expectation that we are going to come into the presence of the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings And that we have an opportunity today to worship. To offer him songs of praise. To just thank him for all the gifts that he's given to us. Then we'll have that opportunity as well. The praise team and the preacher are not here to entertain you. We are here to worship ourselves. And we are here to serve as prompters to help lead you into the presence of God. When we gather it is to declare the worthiness to worship an audience of one, God alone. Worship is not about us, it's about giving God glory. We acknowledge his superiority and his worthiness to receive our praise. You know, if worship were about meeting our needs or getting what we want, then the songs that we sing would look a little bit like this video that I want you to watch right now. let watch this video. It's all about
1: me, really.
2: It is all about you. Now the greatest collection of me worship ever assembled on one CD. It's all about I lift my name on high. All 20 songs all about you. This amazing collection is great to share with friends if you
1: have any.
2: Everyone can join in the worship with you for you and about you. Because you are unique, and you love you.
1: All this for only nineteen ninety-five. Like
2: Operators do. are standing by to serve you. If you order now, you'll also receive a second CD of Yule Tide favorites. I 1-800-ME-ME-ME or order online at me myself and
1: call
2: today because no one can
0: praise you like you now i don't think anybody here wants to sing songs like that right and yet sometimes we come and we leave church saying I didn't like worship today. We didn't sing a single song that I like. We didn't sing any of my favorites. And what we forget is the songs are not about us. The songs are not about our favorites. You know, we have a CD player in our cars or at home. We have an iPod. You can put your favorite worship songs on. And if we didn't sing your song Sunday morning, you can sing them in the car on the way home. You can sing them in your house. You can sing them wherever you are. When we come, if the songs that you're listening to are not your favorites, what we can do instead of of complaining or or having a disgruntled heart is instead look at the words. And we can say, what is this song saying? Is there a line that I can pull out and meditate on? Is there a line that I can make a prayer? If the song is too loud or too fast, look at the words and say, I'm going to focus on this this one word, holy, holy. I'm going to focus on who we're singing about. And we make the song a prayer of worship to God. You focus on the substance, not the style. You focus on who. Remember, Jesus already told us it's not about where you worship, it's about whom you worship. And when it comes to these different styles of worship, sometimes people are like, you know, I don't like this, or why do we have two services? Isn't, aren't we making this consumer all about us? This, this is what Psalm 95 tells us in verse 1. Oh, come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. In verse 6, it says, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. As you look at this, do you realize that one, one expression is exuberant? They're shouting. There, there's great joy as they're speaking to the Lord. And then the other is quiet and submissive. Let us kneel. Let us bow down. Let's be quiet. Let's just yield ourselves in the presence of the one we're worshiping. You know, both responses can be right if the heart is right, and if the focus is on the audience of one, not ourselves. One day there was a pastor who was um, visiting at a church to preach there, and they had a a local family hosting him. And as he was there in the home of this family, he got up early in the morning, he got ready, he was having his devotion, and he suddenly heard this beautiful soprano voice singing the, the hymn, Near My God to Thee. And as he listened to this this uh, young host, this woman who was going about her morning routine, preparing things, and, and engaging in this beautiful song of worship, he just sat quietly and meditated on the words. And when he sat down to breakfast that she had prepared, the woman and her husband were there. And as he sat down at the table, he just said, I, I just, I just want to tell you that I really enjoyed your, your time of worship this morning as you were singing to God. It really helped me to worship God. And she, she kind of said, oh, are you talking about the song that I was singing? She said, that's the hymn that I boil the eggs by. Three verses for soft and five for hard boiled. <laughs> are any of us like this lady? As we sing, are we focused on eggs or are we thinking about exalting God? As the worship is going on, where is our mind? Are we focused on what we're saying and who we're singing to? Are we thinking about where we're going to have lunch when church is over or the shopping list we need to make or the assignment that the kids haven't completed for for school on Monday? It's about our head and our heart. Are we fully engaged in worship? If we learn to focus on the words and who we're singing to, it will help us to do more than just pass the time in a service. In verse 23, Jesus tells us, there is a time when the world will end, but it says there will never be a time when worshiping God will end. He says, but an hour is coming, and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. You know, as you read through the Bible, you find glimpses of God in heaven, And as we look at those glimpses, what they do is they show us that worship is not only... They show us that worship is an activity that both transcends time and place. As as you think about it, it tells us before the earth was formed, there was worship in heaven. Right now, as we worship God here on earth, you realize there's worship going on in heaven. And we're told that there is a time coming... When all of us as believers will join that worship for all eternity, it says in verse 24, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. When Jesus says God is spirit, what he was telling this woman is God is not confined to one place. Remember what she asked? Is it here on Mount Gerizim or over in Mount Moriah where we're to worship God? And what Jesus says is God is everywhere. God can be worshiped here and there at the same time. God is being worshiped at Covenant Presbyterian across the street just as much as he's being worshiped here. And when you walk out of the doors of Wayside, you can worship him in your car, you can worship him in your cubicle at work, in your classroom at school. God can be worshiped everywhere. True worship is not confined to the church or some service. It is only, only confined by not knowing who the true God is. Jesus told this woman, you are worshiping what you do not understand." She said in verses 25 through 26, I know that the Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. And when he comes, when that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. As the story continues, you'll find that she comes to understand this truth. And she becomes a follower and a true worshiper. She runs back to the village. She tells everybody about Jesus and they come and many come to understand who he is and worship him as well. The question this morning is, do you know who Jesus Christ is? Have you come to understand that he was indeed the promised Messiah, the one who would be sent from heaven to earth to take your place in mine by going to the cross and paying the penalty of death to set us free from our sins? And if we come to know him, If we come to God and we say, God, I am a sinner and I've fallen short of your standard of perfection. I I owe that penalty of death for my sins, but I thank you that your son Jesus died for me and God, I accept him as my savior. Friends, if you do that, you are made a part of the family of God. Your sins are forgiven and removed and then you can become a true worshiper. One who responds to God for who he is and for what he's done for you. Worship is not just limited to Jesus Christ, the Son, but God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. And as we worship God for who he is, excuse me, for who he is, we can do what we find here. A.W. Tozer once said, if we see Jesus accurately, we must respond appropriately. Think about that. If we see Jesus accurately, we must respond appropriately. What I want us to do now is to see God for who he is and what he's done. And one place to do that is to look in God's word. As you read through the scriptures, you not only get to see who he is, but you get to see how he is worshiped. And what I want to do today is I want to end by having us focus on chapters four and five in the book of Revelation. Because in Revelation 4 and 5, we are given a glimpse into heaven. And as you listen to what is about to be read, I want you to notice with all that is happening, with all the glory that is going on in heaven around you, the focus is on the Lamb, the one who is worthy to be worshipped. There is a day coming when we who are Christians will join that worship in heaven. Thankfully, we don't have to wait until then. We can worship him each and every day, and we'll do so as we close today. But first, I want you to listen, and I want you to let your heart hear, and I want you to respond to who God is and what he has done. And as we do that, then we will end with worship. So let's focus our head and our heart on who he is, and let's worship the lamb who is worthy.
3: You just look and see. So let me look once again at what it is that I have written. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said,
2: Come up here, and I will show you what must take
0: place after these things.
3: Immediately I was in the Spirit, and and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting was... was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. And there was was a rainbow around the throne, like an emerald in appearance. And around the throne were 24 thrones, and upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white garments and, and golden crowns upon their heads. Out from the throne came flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne which are the seven spirits of god and before the throne there was uh, there was something like a sea of glass like crystal and in the center and around the throne four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind the first creature was was like a lion. And the second creature, like a calf. And the third creature had a face like that of a man. And the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings and are full of eyes around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say, And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits upon the throne to him who lives forever and ever, the twenty-four elders will fall down before him and who sits upon the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever, and will cast their crowns before the throne, saying,
0: "Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor."
3: And I saw in the right hand of him who sat upon the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice,
2: Who is worthy to open the book and to break its
3: seals? Ah. And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or look upon it. that I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping.
1: Behold, the line that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome
0: so as to open the book and its seven seals.
3: And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures. And the elders, a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and he took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain
1: to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing.
3: And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying,
1: To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever.
3: And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped.
1: Worthy is the Lamb who was slain Holy, holy is He Sing a new song